prayer this morning with verses 20 to 26. This is the last section in John's gospel before we begin making our way through the, the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just so you know, we will, we will cover John's account of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Um, and I, I mapped out the rest of the book and we will finish John on the last day of April. Unless I decide to preach one more. And then it will be the first Sunday in May. So, there you go. Today we're finishing Jesus' prayer, John 17, verses 20 to 26. I hope you've turned there. I hope you'll follow along with me now as we give our attention to God's word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our, the preaching of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit now, that he would open our eyes to see and to believe and to treasure what you have revealed concerning Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would know you today through the preaching of your word, and that knowing you, Father, we would take delight in you, and delighting in you, Father, we would be devoted to you. Please bear fruit among us by your Holy Spirit. Please keep me from error. Father, help your word to be clear and plain and faithfully expounded today so that your church would be built up in the truth. We love you, Father. We thank you that you hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are few subjects more important to a local church than the issue of unity. Unity. Nearly every area of a church's life requires unity. Whether it's doctrine or discipline or membership, a church cannot faithfully function without a unified body. And yet, despite this broad agreement on the importance of unity, there is sadly very little unity on how we get there. Some Christians, for example, suggest that unity is primarily a display of love. And therefore, churches should downplay anything that creates disagreements, including doctrine. You get the lowest common denominator of doctrine, so the thinking goes, and you'll get the highest level of unity. Still, other Christians go the opposite direction, arguing that unity is primarily a display of precision. Churches should define their doctrine as narrowly as possible. If we get the highest degree of precision, so the thinking goes, then we'll get the highest level of unity. 
So do you see what I mean? We agree that unity is essential, but there's sadly very little unity on how that we get there. Thankfully, Jesus has not left us to sort out this question on our own. Here at the end of John 17, Jesus provides some very clear teaching on both the importance and process of unity. And strikingly, Jesus' prayer reminds us that unity is something we cannot produce on our own. Rather, as Jesus makes clear in his prayer, unity is a fruit of a shared truth producing a shared identity. As we share our faith in the one Lord, pictured through our one baptism, administered in the name of the one God, we grow as a unified body. This is perhaps Jesus' most important correction for us today in John 17. Unity in a church is not the choice between truth and love, as though those things were somehow at odds with one another. According to Jesus, unity is the fruit of a shared truth producing a shared identity. So, our goal this morning is to think about this vital virtue of unity, but to do so from Jesus' perspective in John 17. In the flow of John's gospel, this is the last recorded teaching from Jesus to his disciples before the passion begins. After this, there is betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection to glory. That alone should tell us something about the importance of unity in Jesus' mind. What is the final thing that he prays for before the passion begins? That his disciples would be one. The last thing on Jesus' mind as he steps towards Calvary is that his church would have unity. Based on Jesus' prayer, there are four characteristics of Christian unity that ought to shape our church's life together. Let me give them to you in advance in case you want to take notes. The first truth addresses our common truth. The first point is our common truth. The second focuses on our common mission. The third points us towards our common goal. And the fourth will conclude with our common love. So that's where we're headed today. Four characteristics of this vital virtue, Christian unity. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus opens with the first characteristic. Christian unity shares a common truth. Christian unity shares a common truth. You may remember from last week that Jesus has been praying for his disciples, his first disciples, the 11 who are with him here at the end. In verse 20, however, the prayer shifts as Jesus begins to pray for his future disciples, those who will believe. Listen again, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Right away, what should stand out to you is the implied growth of Christ's church. Jesus stands on the edge of his final hours on earth, where his ministry is going to end in the apparent failure of the cross. With even these 11 disciples abandoning him at the end, one by one, they're going to flee from the Lord. And even the spokesman, Simon Peter, is not going to raise his voice to affirm Jesus, but to deny him. From the outside then, things look rather bleak for Jesus' ministry, don't they? 
So much for the kingdom of God, we might say. But verse 20 corrects us, doesn't it? Verse 20 corrects us. The fact that Jesus prays for his future disciples is a small reminder that the gospel will spread. The darkest hour of human history will not win. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Amazingly, amazingly, the church will grow. And notice in verse 20 how the church grows. Through the disciples' word. These very same weak-willed disciples will be the witnesses through whom God grows His church. As the apostles proclaim the gospel and record the New Testament, the power of God's word erupts in more disciples. Let's not overlook this point, friends. The church of Jesus Christ is and always will be a creature of God's word. The church will grow because God's word, proclaimed and recorded through the apostles, will not return void. So as Jesus closes his prayer here in John chapter 17 with the cross just around the corner, the apparent failure of the cross, as he closes this prayer, he does so with this small but powerful reminder that the church will undoubtedly grow. The gospel will bear fruit. He prays for his future disciples. The reference to the apostles' word in verse 20 leads us right into the the core of Jesus' request. As the Lord looks ahead to the future for his disciples, what is it that he prays for? The answer is their unity in the apostolic word. Jesus prays for their unity in the word. Notice the transition from verse 20 to verse 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Clearly, Jesus wants his disciples, both present and future, to be united. The language in verse 21 is very plain, that they all may be one, Jesus says. But within that clear request is a very instructive point on unity. Jesus protects us here from misunderstanding what it means to be unified. Here's what I mean. Did you notice the Trinitarian reasoning in verse 21? Look again at the text. How are Christians to be one? Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. There's no division within God. God is simple In his unity, he's not made up of parts that come together as a conglomerated whole. God is one. And that divine unity, Jesus says, is displayed in Christian unity. When believers are united together. Just as the Father and the Son are unified, so also Jesus' people ought to be unified. But, But follow the Trinitarian thinking further for just a moment. The Father and Son are one, but they are not indistinguishable. Very clearly, the New Testament teaches that God the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They are distinct persons. The Father and Son are not roles or modes that the one God adopts to interact with the world. No, the Father and the Son are distinct persons who are united In their godness. In other words, here's the payoff. In other words, their unity is not equivalent to sameness. 
In a similar way, friends, in a similar way, Christian unity is not the call for each of us to be exactly the same in all respects. This is the instructive piece. For a church to be unified, we don't all have to wear the same things. That'd be weird. We don't have to all have the same hobbies. We don't even have to have the same personality. Unity is not sameness. Unity is not sameness. As we see in God Himself, there can be unity of being within the distinction of persons. Now, very quickly, a question arises. What does this look like in the real world? (laughs) God's unity is rooted in His shared being. As Christians, we don't share that unity of being. So where is our unity rooted? Where do we find it? The answer is that transition from verse 20 to verse 21 that we looked at just a moment ago. Jesus prays that His disciples would be one through the apostolic word. You see, the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching, which we could summarize as the gospel, is the ground of the church's unity. When we hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints through the apostles, we are unified. In a way, then, we do share the same being. As Christians, it's not the same way as the Father and the Son share the same being, but each of us came to be a Christian in the same way. By God's grace, granting us faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who lived, died, and rose again for the salvation of the church. That apostolic word, that gospel message, is the core of my identity, and it's yours too. That is our unity. Friends, what I'm laboring for you to see is that fundamentally, our unity is expressed in this common common truth of the apostolic gospel. We are not all the same, and we don't have to be. But we all came to be Christians in the same way, through God's gospel proclaimed first by the apostles and delivered to us in the scriptures. Fundamentally, our unity is the expression of that common truth that we share in the gospel message. Now, don't jump ahead of me. Don't jump ahead of me and think that I'm trying to erase all distinctions between various groups of Christians. This is not a call to ecumenicalism. Let me be very clear. I am not arguing for the lowest common denominator of doctrine in a church. I gladly affirm that I'm a Christian who is a Protestant, who is an evangelical, who is a Baptist. My deepest expression of fellowship then will be with other Baptists who stand in the evangelically Protestant tradition with me. So I'm not, I'm not saying, I am not saying that we eliminate all distinction. But I am cautioning us to not define unity solely in terms of distinction. The ground of unity is not that everyone has to agree with my specific doctrinal convictions. The ground of unity is our common truth in the apostolic gospel. That common truth is what we hold together. It's what made us Christians. It's how we came to be believers. That common truth. And therefore, we ought to be quick to uphold and promote our unity in that gospel.
the second characteristic of unity picks up with this common truth in verse 21, and it carries us on into verse 23. Characteristic number two, Christian, Christian unity pursues a common mission. It shares a common truth, and it pursues a common mission. All through John's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus' mission is to reveal God the Father. This is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so that we might know God. In verse 21, we learn that Christian unity serves that same mission. Listen again to verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, here it is, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, the language is very clear. What is the purpose of our unity as believers? So that the world may believe that the Father has sent the Son. It's really a striking point from Jesus. If you slow down long enough to listen to what he's saying, Christian unity serves the mission of the church. Now, If you're like me, which you don't have to be, but if you are. If you're like me, this point makes you stop in your tracks for a minute. Jesus prays for us to be unified so that the world would believe the gospel. The church's mission is affected by our unity as a congregation. That's a weighty thought. We're going to let it linger for a second. The church's mission is affected by our unity or lack thereof as a congregation. If you read much church history, one thing that stands out is how strongly ancient Christians spoke against schism and division in the church. It's one of the reasons why it took Martin Luther so long to break from Rome because to Tear the body of Christ is a serious offense. To to rend the body of Christ is a grave sin that undermines the mission of the church. We ought to recover the gravity of this in 2023. The rise of individualism combined with the reach of online communication has weakened our sense of caution when it comes to dividing the church. People are far too quick, hear me, people are far too quick to tar and marnish, uh, tarnish and tear the body of Christ. They're far too quick. So if we grasp what Jesus is saying in verse 21, that our mission as a church is affected by our unity as a congregation, if we grasp that thought, then we ought to recognize the gravity and proceed somewhat slowly. Jesus helps us do that in verse 22 when he speaks of glory. Glory is a gravity word. It's a weighty word. Listen again, verse 22 into verse 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So, you can hear the emphasis again on mission at the end of verse 23. That the world would believe the gospel of Christ. Verse 21 and verse 23 
both have the emphasis of mission to the world. And in between verse 21 and verse 23, in between the mission is the glory of verse 22. Jesus prays for his believers to be one in glory. Mission, glory, mission. Jesus even goes so far as to say that this glory is his from the Father, and he shares it with Christians. What is Jesus getting at? The key, I'll argue, is the Father's love. So once again, we're going to have to think along with God's Trinitarian nature. So follow me for just a moment. The Father loves the Son and has given him all authority. This is why the New Testament speaks of the Son as the radiance of the glory of God. The Son uniquely reveals what God is like. Namely, that God is love. When we come to believe in the Son, we share in that glory. That is, we receive God's love in Jesus Christ. So that we know in a saving way the glory of God that only the Son can reveal. That's how the Son shares His glory with His people. By faith. As we believe Jesus Christ, the one whom the Father loves, and through faith in the one whom the Father loves, we receive the Father's love. Now, look back at verse 23, where Jesus speaks of believers being perfectly one. This is where the Father's love bridges together mission and glory. Look at verse 23, notice that language of being perfectly one. The sense here is a growing or deepening unity. When a church continues to believe and celebrate the gospel, which is the good news of God's love in His Son, when a church continues to believe that gospel, our sense of unity is perfected. It grows stronger, deeper, more vibrant in the life of the church. The gospel is the message of God's love in Christ And Christ is the glory of God. So when we believe that gospel, Christ's glory that he shares with us is perfected in knowing God's love and we have unity. As that happens, as that building up happens, a church's witness to the world becomes clearer, more compelling, more credible even. Listen, we proclaim the good news of God's love In Jesus Christ. And our life together, you and me, our life together either adorns that message as true or undermines that message as a fraud. Do do you see the connection? If our life together is fractured with division and rancor, how credible is our message that God so loved the world and gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? How credible is that message? It's not very credible at all. What do disagreeable people who are quick to split know about love? Do you see it? How we live with one another is vitally connected to the message that we proclaim. Our culture, as you know, is increasingly tribal with groups of people segmenting off into smaller and smaller units of identity. And that tendency, I want you to hear me, that tendency is filtering into the church. I don't mean to be an alarmist, but I think we all need to wake up to this danger. 
That tribal mentality of the culture is seeping into the church. In congregations all across the country, people are segmenting into smaller and smaller tribes. Who did you vote for? What do you think about masks? What supposedly hot-button issue are you angry about? And is your anger the same as my anger? And the result is that churches, perhaps without even knowing it, are becoming known for things other than the gospel. It's happening, friends. I talk to pastors all the time, all across the country, and it's happening. So, so, imagine a church where things like self-sacrifice and forbearance and kindness are increasing and visible. Imagine a church where people who have different convictions on secondary issues display a deep and abiding unity on the main issue that Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father from whence He is coming very soon to judge the living and the dead. Imagine that kind of church. Would that kind of church present a credible witness to the world? Absolutely. And in a unique way. That's what Jesus prays for in these verses. That's how the love and the glory and the mission combine together. It's to help us understand that when we continually celebrate and believe the gospel, we are experiencing the love of God in Christ and therefore magnifying His glory in a way that makes our witness credible. Our shared identity in the common truth leads us to pursue a common mission, seeing sinners reconciled to God through Christ and then united together in Christ's body, the church. At this point, however, we might ask ourselves a question. You just said some very alarming things about what's seeping into the church. So, how can we tell if our church is pursuing the common mission? We don't want to be increasingly segmented, so how can we tell? Churches can spend their time doing a lot of things, so how do we know that we're on the right track? Jesus' third characteristic gives us some insight from verse 24. Christian unity desires a common goal. Christian unity desires a common goal. What makes verse 24 so noteworthy is that we hear Jesus tell the Father exactly what he wants. What does Jesus want for his disciples? Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's a lot to unpack in that prayer request. You can think of verse 24 as both looking back to eternity past and looking ahead to eternity future. I know that eternity doesn't have any bearing on time, but we're finite creatures, so just go with it. You can think of verse 24, looking back to eternity past, looking ahead to eternity future. Looking back, Jesus clearly states that he existed before time began. (laughs) Before the foundation of the world. And in eternity past, the Son enjoyed the Father's love. What was God doing before He created anything? Enjoying the love that He has within Himself. 
This is the glory of the Son of God, that he is eternal with and loved by the Father. That's the looking back. Looking ahead, Jesus desires his disciples to spend eternity with him so they can see his glory. What glory? His glory as the Son eternally loved by the Father. We have glimpses of that glory now, but we don't see it fully. As strong as our faith might be, we we do not walk by sight. The sight we have of Jesus Christ today is like seeing a reflection in a dim mirror. We see something, but we're not sure. But one day, our faith will become sight. The dimness of our current bodies will give way to the clarity of glorified eyes. And in that day, try to imagine it, we will see Christ as He is. And in seeing Him, we will be like Him. We will know His glory then in a way that we cannot know it now. We will see Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the end goal of Christianity. This is the purpose, the goal, the end of Christianity. To see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. To see God in His glory in Christ. Why has God chosen to save you, a sinner, so that you will see His glory in the Son? Why has God called sinners together as redeemed people in churches so that those churches will equip believers to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Why has God given you His inspired Word within the church so that through His Word our spiritual eyes would be sharpened, our eyes would be increasingly opened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Friends, this is what we were made and saved to do, to see God's glory in Jesus. That's the goal. Now, make the connection with our common mission from earlier. I love this part of the sermon. Make the connection with our common mission. How can we tell if we are pursuing that common mission together as a church? How can we tell? The answer is to the degree that we are seeing the glory of Christ. That's how we can tell. This is how we stay unified in our mission as a church. We leverage all of our resources, all of our energy on this common goal that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to see His glory. We grow in seeing Him so that our lives are changed by Him so that our testimony accurately pictures Him. That's how we tell if we're on task to the degree that we're seeing the glory of Christ. Practically then, this means the gospel in all of its fullness must be the heartbeat of a church. We have to preach the biblical reality of sin, that by nature we are separated from God and deserve His wrath. We have to preach the glory of Christ's person, that He's fully God and truly man. We have to proclaim the holiness of Christ's life, that He fulfilled all righteousness by perfectly obeying God where we would not. We have to be clear on the atonement of His cross, that without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have to boldly rejoice in His resurrection, that Jesus of Nazareth is not dead, but lives and reigns from God's right hand. And we have to regularly call 
Christians to put off their remaining sin and be conformed to the holiness that God requires. That gospel message in all of its fullness, beginning with our sin and proceeding all the way through our sanctification and glorification, that gospel message has to be our heartbeat as a church. Because this is what we were made to see, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's sum up what we've covered so far. As Christians, we share a common truth of being united in the gospel. That common truth leads us to pursue a common mission for the world to know God through Christ. And that common mission teaches us to live with a common goal, to treasure above everything else the glory of God given to us in Jesus Christ through the gospel. We're going to end with Jesus' last words in this prayer before his passion begins. We're going to end with the fourth characteristic of unity from verses 25 and 26. Christian unity rests in a common love. Christian unity rests in a common love. Verse 25 summarizes Jesus' ministry among his disciples. Despite the world's opposition, Jesus has made the Father known. Look at verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. It doesn't matter how many times we read John's gospel or really where we are in the book. This point remains very much front and center. Only Jesus Christ reveals God in a saving way. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 25, that he alone reveals God the Father. If you've come to church today not sure if you know God or not, there's really a clear, simple way to discern where you stand before God. Do you trust in Jesus Christ or not? Because only Jesus Christ reveals the Father. If you want to know God, you have to know Him through His Son. Now, Jesus, as He prepares to endure the cross, He prays for His disciples, for you and me. And the last thing He prays for us is that we would know the Father's love. Listen again, verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus departs, but his mission of revealing God is extended through the apostles. As they proclaim and record Jesus' teaching, believers like us will continue to know the Father's name. That's verse 26. And the goal of knowing the Father's name is that we share in His love for the Son. Why should you know God? Because when you know God, you share in God's love for the Son. I'll just be honest with you. I, I, I struggle to explain the last phrase in verse 26. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. The Father loves the Son with an eternal, unchanging, perfect love. And Jesus says when we know God through the gospel, we share in that very same love. How can you describe that reality with words? To be loved by the Father with the Son. So I don't mean this as any sort of cop cop out, but words, words fail me to explain verse 26. What wondrous love is this? 
Oh God, give us eyes to see your love for us in Jesus. For our purposes this morning, I want to end on this point. As Christians, we share in that same love. The love of the Father for the Son. I know we've done a lot of hard thinking today. This ending point, I think, would be very fruitful in the life of a congregation that wants to be unified. As church members, we share in the same love, the love of the Father for the Son. God the Father does not have one standard for some Christians and another for others. The Father does not distinguish between those believers who are more gifted and those who are less. God does not secretly keep a list in heaven of Christians he approves of and those he's disappointed in. No. That kind of thinking tarnishes the gospel and makes a mockery of Christ's work to unite his people. God the Father loves his children with the same love that he has for the Son, and he shares that love commonly across each and every believer. That's the theological principle. Here's the application. That means, brothers and sisters, that your fellow church member is the recipient of the indescribable love of God, the same love that saved you. Do you see how that realization promotes unity within a church? If the Father has loved you and me alike, commonly, with the same love, then how much more should I love you and labor to uphold our common purpose of treasuring Christ through the common truth of the gospel that unites us in the common mission of making Christ known. Do do you see it? The Father's love, which defies description, it squelches division, and it binds our hearts together as the one people of God. Again, this is why it's vitally important for a local church to never get bored with the gospel. You do know that all across the country today, there are churches gathering purportedly to worship, and they are utterly bored with the gospel of Christ. And they spend their time thinking about a hundred other different things. This is why it's vitally important for a local church to never get bored with the gospel because it's the heartbeat, the engine, the soil, the core, the fuel, whatever, to unity. When you are tempted to stoke the fire of dissension in the church, what should you do? You should remember that your father has loved your brother and sister in the same way that he loved you and therefore to stoke the fire of dissension is to cast doubt on the love of God for his people. The gospel is the engine, the soil, the fuel, the heartbeat, the core, the center of a church that enjoys true and lasting unity. This is where we rest. This is where we put our roots down. Not in anything we have done to make ourselves right with God. Not in anything we do to distinguish ourselves from the world. Our rest, our roots, go down into the indescribable love of the Father for the Son. A love that He's commonly shared between us as members of the local body. And therefore, because God has loved you inexpressibly in Christ, I will love you. Do you see? There are few issues more important to a church than unity. And praise God, Jesus has not left us by ourselves to figure out what that looks like. He has taught us, He has prayed for us, 
so that we would experience unity in His Word. We don't have to settle for a false choice between unity in truth and unity in love. Through this prayer, Jesus has shown us the better way, the right way. Unity shares a common truth, the apostolic gospel. It pursues a common mission, making Christ known. It desires a common goal for each of us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it calls us to this common love, the love of the Father given to each of us in the Son. Brothers and sisters, please join in praying me that God would give us the blessing of knowing that kind of unity to a greater and greater degree, all for the glory of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, please come and bear fruit from your word. Anytime we seek to speak about you or to describe what you are like, in a sense, Father, we're just lisping after you, trying to use these earthly words to describe heavenly realities. And our attempts are feeble, Father. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to do his ministry that Jesus promised he would do, that he would guide us into all truth. Oh, Spirit, come now. Apply your word to our hearts so that we would bear fruit, even the fruit of enjoying this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.